Welcome to Observe Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas and at least one good story. Episode 112, The Social Play, Ireland, Where Emma Dreams. Suppose you do find a premise in your wanderings. Laios Egri. So my first question is always, can you describe what you look like for the people listening? Okay, well, I'm about five foot five. I'm small frame. I've got brown, mousy, messy hair, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I like to think of my image as sort of shifting from pretty rural to... Uh, I can do smart, too. I can do a sort of uh, a smarter occasion, so it sort of slips and slides between relatively bohemian and, and smart, I think. It's <laughs> a great... Uh great starting point. Alison was really uh, praising your yeah. style, actually. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm going to tell my children. They <laughs> think it's old school. Well, that's a really cool sweater. How yeah, would you describe really that? Oh, I'm lo- this is actually a friend of mine's sweater, and it's 1970s, and it's an old... It's Finnish. It's oh, actually wow. a genuine... That's, I think it's that's the key. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we're always looking for stuff like that when we travel, and we just never can find the real thing. Like, you need to go to charity shops. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That that's yeah. a genuine jumper from the 1970s. And it's a jumper, not a sweater. <laughs> and it's a jumper. Well, I would call it a jumper. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Uh, and it, the color, how would you describe oh, the design uh, too? Like it's cream, mainly with a sort of ferrule, tawny brown, dark brown pattern around the top of the jumper and the sleeves. A little bit in the style of um, the detective in the killing. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and can you describe what's behind you? I'm sitting here looking at you, and there's huge windows, and I see an amazing scene. Okay. So this is a view of um, it's a valley, and um, you can see the footprint of modern Irish architecture, which people are very critical of. Uh, so they would be bungalows, um, primarily, because that was their traditional style, which they then reinvented for a contemporary lifestyle to get rid of the damp. And then beyond that, there's a small patch of river, which is part of the bigger Blackwater, which is really famous. Uh, and there's, beyond that, the mountains, the Knockmill Down Mountains. And you can see the fields all carved up um, to, for, the, for the dairy farmers. So this is really fertile land, and therefore there's a lot of dairy farmers here, as opposed to sheep farmers. Mm. I was wondering about that. We haven't seen many sheep yet. No. In our time in Ireland. Yeah. So with the farmers, if they're dairy farmers, it really changes the landscape. So here, all the little hedgerows have been ripped out, all the traditional stone dry, dry stone walls that you see in Ireland, they've all been torn out to allow for the bigger farm, and mach- farm machinery, which is necessary for dairy farming. Mm. And as you go west towards Connemara, all the little stone walls come back mm. and you see all the little fluffy sheep. <laughs> 
Uh, and I, we have to mention Sheppy also. Sheppy. A big part. I see Sheppy just wandering around out there. Oh, yeah, she she's a sheepdog collie, which my daughter found on Dundee, <laughs> and she is really an iconic dog type of breed that you'll see in the Irish yards of these mm. old cottages mm. and they exist in the wind and the rain <laughs> and uh, for, for a lot of uh, those types of dogs they'll live outside and they'll be working dogs so they're called cow dogs or sheep dogs but in our case she has to help me run my gallery <laughs> and upload images on the website so she's a little bit confused <laughs> so you're not from here can no. you talk about where you're from and how you ended up here in rural Ireland? Yeah, I'm English and before I lived here I lived in London for 11 years and we came here as a result of very um, ill thought out decisions. Mm. <laughs> um, my parents were working here so we were introduced to the country through them and we came for Christmas and uh, we thought it'd be a nice place to live. Uh, we had one child and another one on the way. We were living in a flat in London and were craving a more rural lifestyle. Mm. Uh, we didn't think about getting work before we moved or any of the really practical things that I realise now one must consider before you make these giant steps. <laughs> um, but uh, the kids really loved it and they have a lot of independence and we've slowly made a home here. Mm -hmm. And how has it changed you? Uh, <laughs> hmm. Well, it, when I was living in a city, I think I was pretty narrow in my uh, viewpoint towards friendship. You know, they'd often be similar backgrounds, similar types of people. And then living here, there are those people wouldn't exist. So uh, you appreciate any friendship, that, the possibility of a friendship that comes your way. You make friends with people your own age, people who are older. Uh, and I think if people had shown me a lineup of who my friends would be 10 years ago or 12 years ago, I'd go, you're kidding, no way. But actually they've become really good friends Gen and really genuine friends to me and, uh, and and I've learned a lot from them and are they local Irish people or are, uh, Rupert was telling us about the kind mm. of um, expat English community here also mm. I'm sure it's a mix of both yeah there's a lot of Anglo-Irish but actually my friends are the Irish Irish mm -hmm. and I've really met them through my children and through the little road the, the uh, families that live on my road mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is really eclectic so it's very rural where we live but um, there's something of everybody in this neighbourhood you wouldn't think of it when you look at it you'd think sleepy old Irish rural townland but there's an artist there's uh, a gay couple a lesbian couple that share a family there's an electrician there's someone who works at the supermarket there's just something of everybody, which is really, actually, it's lovely. That's amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'd have no idea. No, you'd have no. You'd think just it looking would... at the landscape, just passing through as travelers. Yeah, no. Often people from around here, they haven't. Some people have grown up here and they haven't really moved further than a sort of ten mile radius of where they were born. But a lot of people um, have lived around the world, but they're Irish and they've come back here. Mm. And they look out of their window. They tell me and they say they don't know of a more beautiful place. But boy, oh boy, is it hard to find work. <laughs> <laughs> Can you uh, pick one or two of them really quick and paint a, a portrait of, of oh, them? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, okay, well, my immediate neighbors are Bridget and Jerry. And um, Jerry is an electrician. He runs his own business. And Bridget, his wife, helps him with the invoicing side of the business. And she's also a seamstress, a really brilliant seamstress. Uh, they're really clever people. I think what surprised me coming from London is that clever people become bankers. But over here, uh, those opportunities don't exist. And clever people do different things. Mm. Uh, they uh, have taught their children really well around the home to do jobs and there's a sort of sense of discipline with their homework and things. And I went to boarding school so I've had to really learn from how they interact with their kids mm -hmm. since we all have children at day school and how you kind of discipline homework time and emphasis on studying that comes from the family rather than the school. Yeah. Uh, who else? There's Chris who is American-Irish and he's an artist, and he has an amazing legacy. His father was at the forefront of the American Abstract Expressionist movement. Wow. He shared a studio with Pollock, Jackson Pollock. Wow. And Chris is in his 60s, and he works as an artist. And he concentrates on vernacular architecture, but I think because of his history, he can give it a really unusual twist. And in recent years, he sold really, really well. Has he done any other pieces in the house? Yeah, so that little piece down there, oh, wow. that red house oh, cool. up there is his. Oh, yeah. uh, it can be quite oh, small yeah. or very, very big. There's one in the living room that I yeah. really love. Oh, yeah, that's house. his. Yeah, yeah. So he does a window and a door and then covers the rest of the canvas in a colour. Yeah. Mm -hmm and just picks up on a very small detail of an Irish cottage, uh -huh. but gives you the sense of it, just yeah. through a window and a door and a bit of a roof. Wow. And yeah. is this, yeah. mm? is that a castle there? That, it's, it's, it's a fantasy, castle, home, place, dwelling. Doesn't exist. <laughs> it couldn't exist. It's got a big chunk missing from its foundations. <laughs> It looks a little like Blarney Castle. <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. Uh, I've never run across that. So, what about travel in your life in general? Has travel played a big role in your life? Uh, no. <laughs> when I was younger, when I was 20, I went to a kibbutz oh. and traveled Egypt for about six months, Israel and Egypt. And those memories are really like dreams for me. Now, I have a very faint recollection of walking into Bedouin camps or being in a place called Dahab, which was really a hippie retreat. 
where you could get up late and eat delicious breakfasts and hang out. I mean, that to me seems so far away. I can't even think how we filled the hours of our day. Uh, I went to India and then I had kids and it just came to a dramatic full stop. <laughs> and after moving from London, I've been here now for 12 years and I've uh, seldom moved from my immediate town. Mm-hmm. Very rarely. Well, what moved you to go to a kibbutz? Did you live there for a period of time? Like, was it an idealistic kind of thing? Or? No, it was, I, I left school, I was 18, and I just was looking for any opportunity to travel. And uh, the, they were, at that time, I went through an organization called GAP, and they had placements in Israel, and that's, that's how I came to do that. It wasn't a preconceived notion on my part or a desire to do it. I knew nothing about it. It's something I only know vaguely about, but I, I mm. kind of would love to try someday. Do you have to, like, work to be yeah. part of it then? Yeah. Yeah, so it's so, like a community of... Yeah, so you live in a community, and the community is self-sufficient, and everyone has a little job, so that would be, you know, avocado picking, banana picking, uh, milking cows, vegetable growing, cooking, lunches... But I think in recent years they've slightly fell apart because people have dreamed of the big lights and the big city and big money, so the younger generation have slowly been leaving. Mm. That just sounds fascinating. I mean, do you know what part of... Do you remember what part of Israel it was in? Was it it rural? Mm, Rural. Um, Yeah, so I was on a place near... I was probably in a place about an hour from Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. And that was just straightforward countryside. And then I was in a place near the Dead Sea, uh, on the border with the desert, um, milking cows. But it was it was twenty odd years ago. Yeah. And I'm pretty useless at orientation. <laughs> I can just about remember the names of the places, but where they are on a map, I have no idea, which is embarrassing. <laughs> That's totally fine. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm, was that your first time outside England, or no? I've been not. to France, and yeah, France. It sounds like it must have been just wildly different, I mean, shockingly different, or no? It was different, but I'm, when I was young, I was quite absent-minded, so I just sort of <laughs> vapoured around the place, just taking bits in, and probably taking, not taking a lot in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I do know, I looked at play, um, the pyramids recently on the internet. Yeah. And I was really stunned to see that hotels have now built up really close mm. to the pyramids. But 20 years ago, or 25 years ago when I was there, you had to do a camel donkey trek oh. from your hotel across the desert out to the pyramids. Hmm. And what, that, was, what was that like? Well, it was just, that was lovely. It was amazing. Yeah. It was, and, and, you know, the scale of those things is awesome. Yeah. But to think now that you can stay sort of within a stone's throw of the pyramids and have them as your view, I'm not really sure that was possible. It may have been, and I just didn't know about it. Yeah, yeah. And Cairo was, you know, really different. Felt very different. How so? Just the men in the caftans and the little clusters of the men chatting, and then they'd, like, tear around in their caftans, which would be floating around them and the... um, 
transport sort of spaghetti roads and the intersections of their motorways. It all seemed really hectic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, That's a really good description. It really is, yeah. It was hectic and kind of fun as well. Mm. Had a sort of sense of fun. And, you know, the the lovely music that you hear, I was about to say crazy, but it seems, because it's wildly different from what you're used to, but just brilliantly atmospheric. Mm. Yeah. But those are dreams now. I can only, I can just, it's a pinprick on the horizon. That's how close I can get to it. Yeah, yeah. Because life changes and dramatically alters. And once you have kids and yeah. a little home to run and you're very rooted to one geographic location, it eclipses those things. What, I'm going to try this question. I've never asked this one before, but what role do you hope travel plays in your kids' lives? Well, I've, they already have a sense of being English and Irish, which I think is a great start, because it means when you meet people, you're more flexible and you can sort of run between cultures and you, that, that sort of shifting identity, I think, is quite helpful mm. um, and allows you to understand people or to be sensitive to people in a way where if you're very rooted to one spot, mm. I'm not sure how easy it it is. Um, I think the world for my children will be quite difficult. You know, I think climate change will have difficulties for them. I think employment is going to be really hard. I don't imagine they're going to be living in bricks and mortar. Mm. I imagine, you know, corrugated iron type of buildings. I imagine community existence will be much more important. Mm. And I think... I think my son is probably going to just root himself in Ireland, but I imagine my daughters will go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I, they're not going to feel tied to a, a specific place. Mm-hmm. They kind of hunger for England because they know that's what they are, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if they'll actually end up living there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try one more question that I've never asked before, before we go to the very end. Uh, would you mind sharing the story you did about the the rice cookies? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> Are you okay recording that and sharing yeah. that? That was fascinating. So we were talking about aging and whether or not we were embracing the aging process or not. And my children, who are 13, 11 and 9, uh, and I'm 42, we had a packet of ja- uh, Chinese rice cookies and I said to them, oh great, there's four left, that's one for each of us. And they looked at me and they said, oh, are you going to have one? I said, yeah, you know, I would like a wish. I, I think I'd like a wish too. And they said, really? At your age? Because <laughs> uh, their perception is my life is done. My future, I've had my future. And therefore a wish is obsolete. Which was, you know, when you're 42, that's pretty shocking. <laughs> Well, now I want to give you the chance to record your wish. <laughs> what is your wish oh, my at wish. 42? And you can listen to this 10 years from now. And oh, see. God, I think I get nervous at this point because <laughs> I, um, I just, I hope to be settled, uh, financially stable. I hope that the projects that I've invested time in have come to some kind of fruition. 
I hope that uh, I've had time to develop my writing and get somewhere with it. Uh, and that I have flexibility to move around a bit and to keep the adventure of life going whilst maintaining a nucleus of, you know, that involves my family and their welfare and their fulfillment. Mm -hmm. I think that's about it. And my last question is always, can you share a great travel story? Um, a great travel story. Um, I was in London recently. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is a great one, but uh, I was on a boat and they were doing a theatre play and these kind of things are very novel to me. Uh, I was on the... Um, where was I in London? Uh, Camden. And we were moored up along the towpath. And uh, because of housing prices, people have moved to the river and they're living in conditions that is barely what I would consider housing. And the towpath attracts quite a diverse, uh, diverse people. And there we were having a play. It was a monologue, a one-woman show and it was about uh, living in London and uh, the instability of housing. So a social play, and two drunks wanted to come on board and listen to it. And for me, you know, living here very sheltered with green countryside all around me, that was going way out of my normal parameters of existence. Mm. Yeah. And you mentioned your friend really wanted to... So we had, well, it provoked a bit of a debate because it was a social play and at its heart was, uh, you know, looking after the people who are more vulnerable in society and the question of rich versus poor and uh, the obligations of the rich to look after the poorer in society. And the two drunks thought they were going to, they'd like to come on board and my friend wanted to give them a chance. It was a social play, so he didn't want to exclude them. But they were pretty out of it, and uh, I felt that they shouldn't come on board. But the debate around it was, you know, what are your prejudices? Here you are at a social play, but deep down, how do you really feel? Mm -hmm. And these kind of things, they always catch you unawares because you think you're liberal-minded, but when you're nose-to-nose -nose up against something, it's really, it's, it's quite a different thing. <laughs> anyway, they came on board, and uh, I could say I was right. They were <laughs> rowdy, and uh, they had to get off because they were interrupting the performance. And, uh, and they were a bit threatening. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Such an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you shared that. Uh, yeah. That love to mark on us. Yeah, we were talking we about it. Like, told that. We don't even, I mean, I suppose we don't have sort of a set group of friends back home, but I can't imagine anyone we know sort of even having that debate of like, well, we should really let them on board because mm. the play is quite social, so there's an obligation. <laughs> And, and, you know, sometimes you let, them, you let somebody like that on board who's, who's homeless and they say, thank you so much. Normally people don't 
allow us and we've had a really, really wonderful evening. And then you're so pleased. You're mm. so pleased that you lay aside any prejudice or preconception. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it just comes down to personal judgment. You should take away the politics and you should just think, uh, is this going to work out well or not well? Yeah. You know, it's not to do with what they have or what they don't have. It's what frame of mind they're in. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, drunkenness is a separate issue than poverty, it seems like. But I don't know. I could get into trouble, but I think sometimes people like that, they work on people's consciences and they will take from you because mm. they'll see an opportunity to kind of, you know, niggle away at your guilt and they can take something. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I don't, you know, I don't live in London. It's very hard for me to read. I live in a completely different context. And I shouldn't be allowed a viewpoint at all. (laughs) I should be excluded from the debate. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. Thank you. And opening up. Yeah. It's been lovely to have you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's been so great staying here. I wish we had more time. (laughs) Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you to Dana Boulay for the music. And thank you for listening. So I was thinking as an outsider... You can, you can bring a bit of magic because you can see things that the person living there really can't see. Absolutely.